Impact Hustlers, the podcast on entrepreneurs and change makers that are creating solutions to the world's biggest problems. Impact Hustlers is brought to you by Fast Forward 2030 and Real Changers. Visit fastforward2030.com to learn how to include the global goals into your business model and realchangers.com to find talent and careers with impact. And this is your host, Michael Shafra. This is Impact Hustlers, the podcast on the entrepreneurs that solve the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And I'm your host, Michael Schaffrath. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe, leave a review and share the episode, most importantly, with a friend. To keep updated on new episodes, visit impacthustlers.com and sign up for our email alerts. And follow us on Twitter as well at Impact Hustlers. Enjoy today's episode and let's go. In today's episode, I speak to Andrew O'Brien, the founder and CEO of Goodbox. Our society is becoming increasingly cashless. When I go out of the house and have a coffee or lunch, I rarely carry any cash around anymore. For the most part, this is not a problem and the rise of Apple Pay, Google Pay and all the contactless credit cards and debit cards makes it really easy for me to pay for almost anything everywhere. However, one sector has suffered from this development, and that's charities. They need to fundraise cash for their causes, and everybody knows the charity fundraisers standing in the street asking for a bit of cash. And they have struggled really making the transition from cash to the cashless society. Goodbox has developed a range of contactless solutions that allow people to quickly donate small amounts to the causes they care about. Their terminals can be found in public spaces, in churches, in museums, and can be an effective way to fundraise in a cashless society. So far, they've helped fundraise about £1.8 million for charities and non-profit organizations like Tate, Natural History Museum, Save the Children, or Help for Heroes. It's great to have you on the show, Andrew. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, and likewise, thank you very much for uh, having me. Thank you. What's the size of this problem? How much are charities, museums and churches actually suffering and how much money are they losing because everybody's not carrying cash around anymore? So this is a significant problem. And what we're trying to address is just a small piece of this issue. There was a House of Lords report a couple of years ago, which concluded that charities are lagging other sectors by five years when it comes to digital technology. Now, that may have been manageable in the 80s or 90s, but given the rate of change of technology today, That's borderline catastrophic. One of the biggest risks to these institutions, these great charities and causes, is the death of cash as people move towards digital transacting. Cash is being left in the dust, and certainly cash is a vital part of charities' fundraising endeavors, and we're here to fix that. So in terms of the quantum or the potential impact, if you were to straight line the declining cash usage over the last five years, you'd be looking at cash no longer being used within the next 10 years. So this presents a major problem to charities. I'd also add that the nonprofit sector is very unique insofar as it cannot inwardly innovate. It can't fix its own problems. And that's largely because of the way the public approaches the assessment of charities. Typically, we assess them on the basis of overheads. What's their expenditure? What percentage of the pound that I give to that charity goes to the end cause? And certainly, if individuals were giving 
a pound or whatever it might be to a charity only to learn that 80% of it goes into experimental tech R&D, for example, then that impacts the reputation of the charity. So it's a very unique sector, which is struggling somewhat to fix their own problems. And that's where we come in. Amazing. How did you initially discover this problem? And why does this problem matter to you personally? So I think the actual discovery of the problem was pretty much in tandem with the uh, discovery of this uh, House of Lords report. So the idea that contactless and the digital transacting is being widely adopted and is in fact disrupting many other sectors, what you found is in the charity sector, it's nothing's happening. So we felt that because of this effective or essential perfect storm that is approaching charities, the idea was, well, I think there's a really good opportunity here to do something special and to really help the charity sector. So I think it was in part the just the landscape that we saw inspired us or catalyzed us to do something about it. But then secondly, at a more personal level, I think there was this drive both from myself and my co-founder, Francesca, to self-actualize, to do something more fulfilling with our lives and our careers. And the combination and the timing made for, uh, I suppose, the inspiration to launch Goodbox. Amazing. What's actually been the first product you developed? How did you actually start, let's say, from idea to the first few donations? So in payments, it's quite difficult to bootstrap, predominantly because the minimum critical mass of investment required to get to an MVP stage is quite substantial. But we did our best. And as part of a trial in 2016, we actually launched Teenage Cancer Trust uh, five demo units, which were leveraging existing hardware and existing solutions. And we launched those at the Royal Albert Hall for the Teenage Cancer Trust event. There were the likes of Ed Sheeran, Noel Gallagher, and many other great bands uh, performing across five nights. And our units in the first night covered the cost of those units individually or the retail price of those units. Uh, and over the course of the five nights where we were active, the numbers were phenomenal. And that was very much kind of, I suppose, trying to demonstrate that first of all, the charity sector was open to adopting these technologies. And secondly, that the donor base was willing to adopt and embrace a new means of giving. And it made for a great event. And that was very much the stepladder, which we kind of tried to rise through the ranks and raise a bit more money to try and build something more robust, more reliable and something more suited to the charity sector and indeed scalable. Yeah, tell us a bit more about that in terms of the suitability to the charity sector, right? Like as an outsider, I would think, okay, can't charities just basically buy the same machines that all the stores buy and use that to collect donations, maybe put a nice panel on top? Why do they need your solution versus what's already out there in terms of contactless payments, etc.? That's probably one of the most important questions when it comes to justifying our business model and justifying our existence to both charities and to investors. This is the same question that we receive from both sides of the fence. And certainly the answers seem to have been compelling enough for us to secure good investment over the past few years, but also to uh, secure some great charity relationships. As part of our investment round, when posed these questions by key payment insiders, The answers, which effectively revolve around 21 key differentiators that we've built into our solutions, have been enough to secure WorldPay executive investment, Visa executive investment, indeed, to WorldPay XC level management are sitting on our advisory board. So it feels like from an insider perspective, there is an acceptance that what we're doing is different. And then from a charity perspective as well, uh, most of the tenders in which we've been invited to submit in the UK, if a charity is part uh, subsidized with government funds, then they're required to go to tender for anything. And we've been winning uh, over 95% of the tenders in which we've been participating, including beating some very sizable, well-known household 
uh, US company names as well. And just touching on those 21 differentiators, I'll give you a couple examples. So part of kind of exploring through what charities and nonprofits can do or leverage when it comes to payments versus traditional uh, payment solutions, uh, we discovered that there was the opportunity to exempt the charity sector when it comes to requiring connectivity. So as an example, I'll give you two, one macro, one micro. When you look at a charity that might be fundraising at, for example, the Royal Albert Hall, such as Teenage Cancer Trust, you're dealing with very high footfall, very low connectivity. You can imagine anyone trying to take out their phone in a stadium, trying to use it and establish good connectivity. Well, the same problem exists when trying to transact. If there's no connection, the payment won't process. So we've uh, built our products to be able to store payments. And when connectivity is reestablished, they will automatically process those payments. It's been a very effective selling tool into not just the macro, as I mentioned, but also micro examples such as churches sitting on a hill with one meter thick stone walls who lack the resource to install Wi-Fi connectivity, for example. Effectively, they're ruled out from the ability to process transactions live time. And what we're trying to do is build solutions that democratize charity access to technology. And many charities struggle with connectivity, and therefore we needed to address that problem. So that's one example, and there are 20 others where we've looked to build in key solutions that differentiate us versus your traditional terminal that ultimately lead to multiple times uplift and conversion and a much more satisfied customer. Amazing. And obviously what you probably bring to the table is that you just understand the sector very well, whereas maybe account director at, you know, selling these terminals to all kinds of shops wouldn't really understand the specific needs of charity. So it's great to hear that you're targeting that market. Let's talk a bit about traction that you have. I mentioned a few charities and museums that are working with you. How far have you come so far since you first had the idea and where do you stand in terms of the product and the traction with it now? So uh, traction-wise, we've been very fortunate to receive some good PR. For example, a couple of weeks ago in early July, we were featured in the Times and the Telegraph, specifically around an event that we did with the Archbishop of Canterbury and at the York Ministry, where we showcased one of our accessories to one of our core products, which is we call it the Good Plate. Effectively, it's a contactless church donation plate. And that has allowed us to get good traction with the church as well. We've got a national contract with the Church of England. We are engaged and rolled out with uh, seven of the top 10 UK-based museums. We're engaged with 80% of the top 100 charities. So we're, we're very fortunate, indeed, in, with the church as well. So we're rolled out across 14 of the biggest cathedrals in the UK. So we feel very pleased, very proud of the progress that we've achieved to date. There's a lot more work to be done. I think through the establishment of these great relationships, combined with a great report, which we published in partnership with the Institute of Fundraising, a white paper, effectively analyzing and assessing all of the, our products and all of progress with uh, contactless fundraising to date, the conclusion was clear that all charities in the UK should be as seriously assessing contactless as a viable means of fundraising. And for us right now, the key challenge for us is just handling and dealing with the incoming flow of inquiries coming through our website. So we're in a very fortunate position. We don't really do any outbound sales yet. I'm sure we will in time, but certainly the interest from the charity sector, the, uh, the keenness to adopt this and the keenness on our part to deliver it in a really simple manner seems to be making for a successful story so far. Tell us about maybe a case study, uh, maybe one of those, uh, you mentioned the church already, but a success story and what it actually means for charity or uh, nonprofit to start using your service. What's the actual difference it makes for them? Is there maybe an example you could share with us? Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose as a rule of thumb, uh, 
Whatever a charity raises in cash, right now they should expect to raise 80% the equivalent in contactless. That's average across the board, but it does seem to be a reliable guide point. Um, beyond that, looking at some of our success stories, I would say that one of, some of the museums have been phenomenal. I think Natural History Museum, we've increased their fundraising. We now form 60%, 60% of all their fundraising, so we're actually overtaking cash. And through six units that we have deployed across the museum, the, the progress has been incredible to the tune of half a million pounds plus. They were our first full rollout partner, and they've been a fantastic advocate when it comes to the adoption and the trialing of new technology. So we couldn't be more grateful to them. But they've also provided us with great evidence which to demonstrate to other charities, churches, museums, whatever it might be. This is the real deal. And we are the right people to be talking to if you are considering this. Great. Let's look at the market. I think in the donations market, obviously, if I try to donate to a charity, I expect 100% of my money to arrive at that charity. And at the same time, the charities are probably... Uh, actually a pretty bad customer to make money off right because they have constrained budgets and they won't be able to leave hundreds of thousands of pounds with you just to put up a terminal so how could this even work as a business and how are charities actually good customers for you and how does your business model work so our, our business model is split into three different revenue lines what we try to do is build a model that is suited to charities of all sizes you can have charities being run out of a Uh, an office at the back of a home. You could have a charity that is a multinational, complete ownership of an entire building in, in London, for example. So what we've tried to do is build pricing models that are suited to charities that are flexible, tailored to their needs, and allow them to maximize the potential of the solution. So our three levels, tiers of pricing, I should say, or tiers of revenue. That one is in the actual hardware itself. So we sell or rent the hardware. Rentals come in 40 pounds for one week. Uh, alternatively, we sell the hardware when we try to offer flexible terms so they can pay up front or they can pay over installments over the course of 18 months. What's key to us and what we like to convey to charities is that once the unit is paid off, there are no other tie-ins or costs related to the hardware. Yes, they can connect to wireless, they can connect through LAN cable, or they can connect through 3G, which is IoT built in to the units. We don't charge for that. That's all just a part of the package. The mm. second tier of revenue for us comes in a platform fee. Uh, contactless is very much the beginning of our journey and we've got a wonderful plan in place which we're executing right now a roadmap for product launches all within one consolidated platform that allows charities to access new technologies they may not otherwise have been able to do so and in the context of the platform fees it starts at free so if you're a small charity you can buy your piece of hardware and then pay nothing monthly so you're not tied into any monthly costs but if you're a large charity and want to benefit from Uh, better rates or more platform product access, then you can pay a monthly fee and benefit from those upsells. The third revenue tier uh, comes in the form of transactions. And what we try to do here is to be extremely competitive against traditional payment costs. Uh, so, so our transaction rates start at 1.75% plus 10 pennies, and they go up to 2.5% plus 10 pennies in the context of the free package. So we feel like that mix is a good is well suited across the board to both large charities, medium-sized charities, and smaller charities. And certainly the feedback that we've received has been positive. I mean, Reid Hoffman, LinkedIn, he, he, he did say once that, you know, if you've launched and a year later you're using the same pricing model, then you got the wrong pricing model. So we're always keen to evolve and adopt new approaches, adapt to new methods, and pricing is no exception. Amazing. Let's uh, look at a bit at some of the questions around 
your entrepreneurial journey. There's a bunch of early stage entrepreneurs listening to this as well. What has been the most challenging part of starting Good Box? Uh, what's maybe one of the lessons you learned through your journey so far? So uh, taking a bit of a contrarian approach to businesses and startups, I'm not a subscriber to many of these inspirational speakers who tell you to pursue your dream and go for it and take the chance, take that leap of faith. Um, I find that you only really hear about the success stories in the aftermath. But what you don't hear about are those that tried uh, and didn't succeed. And certainly Goodbox, we're still in scale-up mode. There's still a lot of risk associated with our business, and we're doing our best to mitigate that risk. But everything that we've tried to do from the first phase of our journey has been to be very confident in what we're doing or what decisions that we're taking to make sure that we're minimizing risk at each step to ensure that we've got appropriate runway. And runway is always going to be a challenge for companies early stage. And just to make sure that you're not sacrificing or the people that joined us weren't sacrificing everything they had come and do this. I mean, for example, in my journey, it did involve initially a lot of co-curricular work versus my previous career in investment banking. And then when I felt confident, I didn't take that leap of faith. I took what I like to describe as a step of confidence into this business where I felt that there was a viable model and that this was scalable. So from my perspective, I do think it's about doing your homework, figuring out what you're not good at and finding the right people to plug those gaps. I like to quote um, Barack Obama, who uh, during his second re-election drive for president, he, he stated that nobody has a monopoly of wisdom. And I think it's those who are candid enough to understand what they're not good at and find the resource to plug those gaps. The chances or likelihood of success for those individuals is exponentially higher. That's great. Great advice to share. I mean, we hear all these great stories, very superficial stories and reporting very often. And from, you know, Elon Musk not being able to pay rent <laughs> to all kinds of stories of going all in and just jumping into it. So you basically, did you just start part time, first of all, and then kind of build it up and build a little bit of traction or validation before you actually jumped in? full-time? Yes, I'd say that was the case. I think I was somewhat fortunate in the context of my previous career. I used to work at a, an investment bank based in London. And it was just, it was very much during the weekends where I was kind of exploring this, understanding whether there was potential to the model. And when the time was right, as I mentioned, I felt it was right to step up and leave my previous career to pursue this one. But it was very sequential. I wouldn't say methodical. I don't think anything as part of a startup's journey can be described as methodical, raising us a lot of doubt and tough times. But at the end of the day, it's all about trying to just balance that risk and decide what's best for you and your future, rather than taking a plunge that may have been misguided or lacking the right insight with which to make a good decision. That's great advice. If you look at the charity sector in general, do you see a lot of different problems Besides the one we just talked about that you're solving, do you see other problems that you think founders could be solving? So if somebody's listening to this and says, okay, I love to help charities, like, is there any ideas you can share or any tips on how they can actually find out what type of problems are worth solving for the sector? I'm not going to share too much because we've got a lot of problems that we want to solve as well for the sector. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, Don't create competitors today, but <laughs> maybe the stuff you don't want to do. Absolutely. I think in terms of our approach to this sector, we're, we're not trying to be busy fools and do everything uh, all in one place. What we are looking at is, well, who's really good at what they do in this sector? And is there a way that we can partner with them, that we can help them become more successful in terms of a cross-pollinating relationship? When it comes to advice, 
to those looking at the nonprofit sector. Firstly, I completely disagree with this notion that people shouldn't be focusing on the nonprofit sector for profit interests or self interest. I think that the victim of that stigma very much ends up being the nonprofit sector. It's the equivalent of when you look at other sectors which have been brilliantly disrupted through innovations such as Airbnb and hotels or Uber and taxis or whatever it might be. Um, that only comes through a drive for innovation to try and fix problems and solve them. What you're finding with charities right now in terms of bespoke or custom technological solutions is the equivalent to walking into a mobile phone or a cell phone store and getting the choice of a Nokia 3210 as opposed to what you get now, which is a beautiful array of choice where competition prevails and flourishes that ultimately benefits charities. I believe that hopefully the good box journey so far is very much a rally cry for others to step into this sector. And where can people fix problems in the sector? I would suggest taking a look at, well, where are not-for-profits different to the for-profit sector? What areas do they struggle to inwardly innovate and where can you help them? And certainly that's the approach that we try to take. One other thing that I've learned about the nonprofit sector, unlike the for-profit sector, is that the for-profit sector very much focuses on two requirements, prerequisites to be deemed, your product to be deemed a viable product within that sector. And that is that it can increase revenue and or reduce costs. Now, with the charity sector, you need one more thing, and that is to make their lives easier as well. And if you can tick those three boxes or two of those three boxes, then you have a product which could be very, very successful and help many charities and help many causes and change the lives of many people. Thanks for sharing that advice. My last question would be, if you imagine the world in 10 years, how does it look like if you succeed with Goodbox? So the world that I would envisage with uh, your Goodbox presence would be a world in which causes are not judged in their success or failures by their charity champion's ability to access technology. The idea that someone who sets up a charity because they believe in a cause who may not necessarily know how to generate the revenue for that cause or access the right technologies or use the right technologies, those bottlenecks are removed. It reminds me very much of this amazing story, the journey of Amazon Web Services and cloud computing, which removed the need for on-site servers. What did that do in terms of allowing lots of startups to scale much more quickly and efficiently? And what we're trying to do is remove some of these barriers, obstacles, bottlenecks for charities of all sizes uh, such that they can impact the causes they care about most. Now, ultimately, the goal of Goodbox and the vision is to curate a world where many of the greatest problems are consigned to history. Some of the greatest challenges, such as famine, disease, charities are all about fighting some of these issues or addressing these issues. Ultimately, Goodbox would like to get there, like to, I suppose, curate a suite of solutions that helps charities eliminate these problems. Uh, but certainly in the interim, it's all about removing the bottlenecks and challenges experienced by charities such that they can easily access technology to drive their fundraising endeavors. Thank you very much for joining me today, Andrew. And I wish you all the best on your journey. It's been amazing to have you. And likewise, thank you for your time. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe, leave a review and share the episode with a friend. To keep updated on new episodes, visit impacthustlers.com and sign up for our email alerts. And also follow us on Twitter at impacthustlers. Thanks very much for tuning in and see you next week. 
This was Impact Hustlers, the podcast on entrepreneurs and change makers that are creating solutions to the world's biggest problems. Impact Hustlers is brought to you by Fast Forward 2030 and Real Changers. Visit fastforward2030.com to learn how to include the global goals into your business model and realchangers.com to find talent and careers with impact. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impact hustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.